My name's George, one of the pastors here. Welcome to Whitewater. Uh, hey, you made it to church at the end of summer. Like, way to go. You're here. Uh, how are you guys doing? Some people are smiling. Some people are kind of like, you need some coffee. We got lots of coffee in the back if you need that. Uh, so glad you're here. Um, we've been in this series uh, called Daniel. We actually launched it last week. And uh, I'm really excited about this series, and we're going to be uh, in Daniel for eight weeks. And it's really about how do we live in Babylon, uh, you know, when it feels like our faith is trampled on. How do we learn to thrive? How do we learn to be faithful um, to our convictions as we go through that? And Daniel has some incredible things to say. Uh, before I, I go much further, though, I just wanted to celebrate a few things. One, um, we are just we've just been having God move and... Um, in some incredible ways in our church. Uh, there's been people who have gone through really hard uh, health stuff, uh, hard life stuff, or had f- uh, friends and family members have health things. And in the midst of the challenge and the adversity and, and the sorrow, like God's really been showing up. And uh, it, not, not, I can't uh, say that God is showing up more than he is in our friends, the Wenzels. Uh, it's a family that goes to our church, if you're not aware. Uh, Brandon and Abby, they had their little daughter, Lily, uh, Joy was born septic. She was born with a uh, cord wrapped around her neck. And it's just been every step of the way. The doctors really didn't think that she would make it. She needed prayer. She needed a lot of pe- uh, people with faith around her. And really, she needed the hand of God to move. And each step of the way, God has been saving her and using her story to help other people. And you guys, she's been unplugged from all the tubes that she's been plugged uh, into for over a month. And uh, guys, they're going to be coming home soon. And we're, and so continue praying for them. But I just want to recognize, isn't God good? Isn't he good, man? Yeah, you can give a hand for that. Like, God is so, so good. Um, and uh, we, we feel so grateful. There's a lot of families that are like all of a sudden having babies. Like first time, like we're just pregnant. We're having babies. We didn't even know how it worked. And we're... You know, like they're you mar- married first year, two years, and all of a sudden they're get, having babies. And there's some people that are having like babies and like they're like, we weren't even planning this. And like the Lord is just making you very fruitful uh, people. And so uh, we're excited about all the kids that are coming. And we got to celebrate, uh, we got to celebrate um, my son's first birthday today. Uh, at the start of the morning, yeah, it was amazing. He's a miracle baby. Doctors didn't know or think that we could have another one, and uh, we did. And he's healthy, and and it's been awesome. We start off the morning really bad, though. He came to grab my computer uh, and uh, swiped nothing, uh, made him go off balance, hit his face on the coffee table, so like right in the teeth, and then hit his head. And that's how he started his morning. He's okay. Just a little blood. And thunder, and uh, that's the Bedlam family, but he's all right. Uh, that's how my day started. So if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for each and every soul that's here, Lord. Um, I, sometimes we're, I, I feel like we're people, broken, and with all sorts of issues, and sometimes we have this feeling like, man, we're, I'm just... I'm just basic human. I'm trying to be spiritual. Lord, I pray that you would flip that reality around in the hearts of people and in their minds, Lord, that that you have created each and every soul, that we are spiritual beings, and we're actually learning how to be truly human. If there's anybody in here who's struggling with um, depression or just the weight of the world's on them, would you lift that weight off their shoulders? Would you give them vision for their life? Would you give them encouragement? Would you give them truth today? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Daniel is an incredible story. It, it's, it's about um, a man who is actually only 15 years old. Um, scholars think he was a, a teenager. He's about 15 years old 
when he was transplanted, when he became a basically a uh, a refugee who's moved into a new country that doesn't believe anything he believes, doesn't prioritize anything he prioritizes, and doesn't have faith in the God that he has. In fact, there, uh, the place he moved was Babylon. It was the Babylonian Empire. And, and when he was transplanted out of his nation, out of his country, he was put into a place uh, that he would have never have imagined himself being. Imagine being 15 years old, your, your nation is under siege. You lose the battle. You're God's people. You're part of God's like nation. God has always delivered you. He's delivered your people from Egypt. And you believe all these stories. You have faith in a God who's like this God who provides and is faithful and delivers you. And then you and your nation are delivered over to uh, the Babylonians. And the king of the Babylonians' name was Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he was a pride-filled, violent... Um, narcissistic king uh, who used coercion and violence to get what he wanted when he wanted it and God handed over his people to that add insult to injury Nebuchadnezzar because of the way that you conquer nations uh, the way the Babylonians would do it is they wanted to make sure they had control of everything so they would actually take like the top 20 to 25 percent uh, of, of, of people mainly the leaders and the best and the brightest and they would take those people from a nation basically the heart of a nation and uproot them and then move them to Babylon and it served two purposes. When you moved, remove the best and the brightest and the greatest leaders of most influence from a nation, what does that do? It, it creates a people that are leaderless and more compliant and would, would be less uh, apt to have an uprising or some kind of rebellion. And so they would keep people in line, keep nations in line by removing their leaders. But then the other aspect, the other side of the coin was when you take the best and brightest and put them in Babylon, you're taking the best and brightest and, and you're, you're, um, assimilating that and using that into your culture. So you're using the best of the best to fuel your nation. This is the world in which Daniel was thrust into. This is where he found himself, 15 years old, uprooted from his family. Um, this story that we're, that we're going to be going through is an incredible story. It has so much to teach us. Uh, one of the most amazing things about the book of Daniel is I think it teaches us an example through Daniel on how to live in Babylon. And, and here's the reality. Many of you guys, even though we don't call it Babylon, symbolically uh, and and and. Um, in principle and in faith, you and I are living in Babylon. We're living in a nation, uh, and I don't care if it's on the coin or you might believe that like, like America is a, is a Christian nation. When you look at the convictions and the principles and the way that our world functions, we, we're not in a Christian nation that devotes everything to Christ. If we, if, if we did, the world would look like Christ, would it not? It would look like Jesus. And the world I look at does not, like pervadingly, the politics and the business world does not generally look like Jesus. Now, there's bright spots and there's good things going on. But we live in the middle of Babylon. In fact, you more than than me in some ways. If you look at Daniel, he's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a pastor. He's not a professional uh, clergyman. He's not a you know, vicar. You know, whatever term you'd use. I got called Reverend the other day. Reverend George. I'd never been called that. It felt kind of strange. Um, you are like more like Daniel. He, most of the Bible stories are about these religious leaders and prophets and priests and kings and these guys who are religious leaders. He was a government worker transplanted from his home nation, uh, uh, powerless, 
Uh, he was somebody who had to work his way up in the government, and, and, and he lived in this environment where the, nobody held his convictions, his faith, or his priorities, and he had to learn how to do that. And many of you live in places and work in places and go to school in places where you are, your beliefs are in the minority. You're trying to figure out, how do I live uh, my faith out without like giving up on my faith? How do I live into my convictions without uh, complying and compromising? And, and Daniel has so much to teach us. And so I would just like to jump in to that. Um, and just to give a little bit, again, of the background, the, the, the history here. Uh, Daniel was, was given over to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he was moved from uh, Jerusalem to Babylon. If you throw up the, on the screen the picture, he was moved from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. It's in modern-day Iraq, and it's about 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. Uh, so that's where he was moved. That was the journey he had to take to go from his homeland to exile. If you go to the next picture, Nebuchadnezzar was famous for a lot of things. One of them being the great like uh, gardens that he made. This one he made for his wife. It's uh, the, these gardens that were uh, unbelievable. He made it for a wife, one of his wives, who uh, missed uh, the hills and mountains and gardens that she was used to. So he built in the middle of the desert the Hanging Gardens, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's very powerful guy. Uh, his uh, pa- um, power and his creativity was only matched by his violence and pride. Um, and so this is the world Daniel finds himself in. Starting in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of eunuchs, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family uh, and from the nobility. The young men, without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction, wisdom, knowledge, perceptive, smart. It sounds like a dating site, doesn't it? Like, you go pick out these guys capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank, and they were able to to be trained for three years. And at the end of that time, they were uh, to attend the king. Among them from the Judaites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief eunuch uh, gave them names. How would you like to be known as the chief eunuch? Like, you're the boss, but you're a eunuch. That would be, that'd be a rough position to be in. He gave them the names Balthashazar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. And last week we learned, I would encourage you to go catch up in the series. Last week we learned that the way the Babylonians would take the heart of a nation and take the heart out of people was to attack their identity first. And it's true in any nation. It's been done by many, uh, many, uh, empires that have taken over other places. And, and I think this is a spiritual thing that, uh, the devil, Satan, the enemy of, of God, the enemy of God's people, uh, this is a strategy that he uses is to steal the identity out of people and to give them a new identity, a false identity. And, and we learn that each one of the names that I just listed that was given to Daniel and his friends who are from Judah, who are from Israel, God's people, uh, these identities were, were meant to, to make fun and to undermine the identities they've been given in, in God. And the, if you remember, the identities attacked being God-centered to being man-centered. It attacked uh, their, their, uh, their, their gender, their sexuality. Uh, Daniel's name was turned from a man to a, a woman uh, when he was being addressed. And it was belittling. It was demeaning. And um, we might look at our world and be like, yeah, we don't see any of these weird Babylonian conquering things happening. But I'm telling you, we live in a culture that loves to rename you. 
loves to steal the identity that you have and give you a false identity. We have so many people that are buying in this, in our world that are being told your primary identity is in your gender. Your primary identity is found in your sexuality. Your primary identity is found in your work. Your primary identity is found in, in your accomplishments and what you can do in the world. And, and the problem with that is when any of those things are your identity, well, it's going well as long as, well, things are going well. But when things don't go well and you realize that like, like, uh, sexuality, gender, work, life, uh, accomplishments, um, popularity, what people th- think and say about you, when those things aren't going well, well, your identity is dragged down into that. And God teaches us that our identity is primarily found in Him. It's not found in our gender, primarily. Now, these are important things. Don't get me wrong. It's not pr- you're, If you are a Christian, your identity is found and it's safely hidden and, and can never be touched. It is given to you by God. It's found in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Your identity is in Him. And so no matter what the world tells you, no matter the ups and downs that everybody else goes through, when you become a Christian, you can put your identity, the core of who you are, in the love of Jesus Christ. And that can't be earned. It can't be deserved. It can't be uh, something that's bought. It is something that is given. And it can never be taken away. And I gotta quit preaching on that because that's last week's sermon. So I'd encourage you to look at that. But don't let your identity be taken from you. Find it in Christ. The sermon I want to preach to you is found primarily in Daniel 1, 8 through 21. It says, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Remember, the king's like, you're, they're going to drink from my table. It's actually seen as a privilege. You're going to be adapt fully to me, to what I eat, to what I think, to what I want, to what I do. And you are going to adapt everything in your life around me. That's what you are. That's what the empire is. You will have allegiance to the king, allegiance to this nation. Forget your gods, forget your nation, forget your family, forget your values, forget your faith. And Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Who the heck is Daniel think he is? He's uh, part of a people group that have lost, not only are, are losing their identity, but they've lost the war. And he's been separated from his family. He owns nothing. He belongs to the king. He like, he, who is he to say like, I'm not going to eat this food. And why would he even think that? Why, why, why not eat the food? Like everybody else is doing it. It's probably really good compared to what many other people in the empire are suffering through who don't have enough food. Like, who is he to say this? And in Jewish law, uh, they had they had dietary law. Like they weren't supposed to eat like uh, pork and shellfish and certain foods. And Daniel decided, I'm not going to defile myself. And for him, and we're in the new, you know, like we follow Jesus, so it's okay to eat pork. It's okay to eat shellfish. But back in this day, this was one of the things that distinguished them. And it was, it was violating his personal conscience. You ever had someone ask you to do something that violated your personal conscience? terrible place to be in that's a dilemma and daniel's in this dilemma doesn't want to give up on his convictions and and so he decides i'm not going to defile myself the word for defile means to pollute it means to create a like a toxin and i wonder today if many of us have even think about the lines that we cross culturally or the convictions that we let go of so easily not realizing that the pollutants and the toxins that we let into our life. I wonder if some of us aren't even aware of the pollution that is coming into our life. Um, 
Daniel has something really, really amazing in this story. And um, we'll, we'll get to it here. So here's what happens. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. And uh, God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. And yet Daniel said, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your, uh, your food and drink. What if he sees your face and looks, and you look thinner than the, the other men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. The, the eunuch is saying, look it, like, I, I actually sympathize with you and I like you, Daniel. He's probably this 15-year-old kind of punk kid and he probably sees himself in this kid. And he's like, I used to be like you and I used to have convictions too. And it's cute, but this is reality. We live in the empire. Nebuchadnezzar is king, not whatever God that you used to serve. And I would if I could, but like I would be endangering my life. Like if you look worse because you don't eat the food the king gives, like king will just say, oh, I'll get, I'll find a new chief eunuch really quick. Like he can make that happen really fast. I don't want to give up my place and my life. So Daniel goes on to say to him, so Daniel says to the guard whom the, uh, the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishai, and Azariah, please test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men. Do a comparison, like test us and the ones, with the ones who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days and at the end of 10 days, they look better than the healthier and healthier than all the young men who are eating from the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and wine and they were able to, and, and, and their drink and gave them the vegetables and water that they wanted. Verse 17 says, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. He was gifted by God. He was very gifted by him. Like, like, not everybody has that gift. Some people are like, man, I have the, I want to have the gift of dreams. Like this, it does exist, but there's not many people who have it. And, and it's very, this is very rare how God has gifted them. Verse 18, at the end of the time that the king had said to, to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed each one of them and among them, uh, among all of the, the men who were taken from other nations, other places, the smartest, the best of the best, they were all piled in and interviewed the king. And among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. God gave them incredible favor. favor. And so they began to attend the king. And in every matter of wisdom, understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. God honored Daniel's stand. He was given favor. He and his friends were given favor. They were given influence in Babylon that no one else had. So my question is, well, how can we learn from him? In, what, in like whatever situation, whatever school, whatever workplace, whatever dilemma you face, how can we learn from Daniel? First thing I want to uh, draw out is this. Um, Daniel determined privately. He determined privately his priorities and his convictions. So the, the full thing we're going to d- discover here, and this first thing is Daniel determined privately, asked permission graciously, and then offered a creative solution. But starting at the beginning of that, Daniel determined privately... Back in verse 8, he determined not to defile himself. 
So many people in our world are wanting the world, wanting their friends, wanting Facebook, wanting social media, wanting whatever you know news channel of your favorite choice is. We live in a world that wants to be told what to think. You're to be, you're to think this. You're to think this ethically. You're to think this politically. You're to think this religiously. And, and, uh, unfortunately, there's a desire to be told what to think because it's easier. And we can feel like really set, well, I was told what to think. And so I'm going to, I'm going to defend that. And I'm going to, I'm going to get around that. I'm going to put my life on that. And I'm going to be really good at, at doing what people have told me to think instead of learning how to think. And in our church at Whitewater, one of the things, I, you know, there, there's a place to tell people what to think. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a place for it. Like my daughter, she's running across the street. There's a place for me to say, stop running across the street. Don't run across the street. And pull her back and tell her what to think there. Or if there's, a, there's, an, there's an oven with the, the burners on and she goes to touch it. Or my little son who's one years old goes to touch something and say, no, it's hot. They need, like at a certain age, a certain immaturity where we don't have the capacity to maybe understand how to think quite yet, and we need to know what to think. I want my son, my daughter to know not to touch the burner. But more importantly, as they grow and develop, I want them to learn how to think so that they don't just think that the oven's the only thing that can burn them. I want them to be able to think so that when the other things in life come that can burn them worse than an oven, they will know how to process that and be wise. Are you with me? At Whitewater, we want to teach people how to think. I want people to be like Daniel. Somebody in Daniel's life had impacted him. It was probably parents. It was probably mentors. They had, they had impacted him so much so that he was in the middle of Babylon with all this pressure when everyone has to follow the king's orders. He was able to determine for himself that this is not the right thing to do. How many people in our day and age, how much of a need in our day and age do you think we have for people to be able to learn and think for themselves and determine those lines? Now, I'm not saying you determine all morality. I'm saying you learn to think with the wisdom of God, through the scriptures of God, with godly wise people, how to make wise decisions. Does that make sense? I'm not saying we just make things up, you know, like broccoli now is, uh, I'm going to call that the nasty food. You know, like you can't just rename things. I mean, maybe you can, but the rest of the world is going to go by that. You have to learn wisdom, learn to think for yourself. And Daniel does that. Someone had the impact on him to teach him how to think. Because if he just did what people told him to think, he would just start eating the king's food, wouldn't he? Next is he asked permission graciously. So <clears throat> he comes up with his convictions and says, "This I, I can't do this. It would violate what, my conscience before the Lord. I can't. I can't partake in this." But he doesn't just get angry and like go Mister Furious and be like, "I will not eat anything," and like huff off and get angry and rage. You ever seen the Rage Monsters? I had a friend, love him, still is my friend, but like he, when he was coming up with convictions or he felt like he was going to cross a line he shouldn't cross, he would get so mad and it would build and build and build and there would be like no gracious conversation about it. It would just build until finally he's like, I will not do this. It is against my convictions. How dare you? I mean, he'd just get so mad and blow up at people and people would be like, I was just offering you a hot dog, man. He'd be so, so furious. And notice Daniel doesn't do that. He determines privately, probably with the help of his friends and prayer, and he, and he thought about these things, thought for himself, and then he asked permission graciously. Could, could, I, I can't 
I can't do this. Is there any way I, not to eat the king's food? And when again he was said, I, the, the, the chief eunuch and the, the guys that he's reporting to, they're like, Nebuchadnezzar's going to kill us. What does he do? He offers a creative solution. In this major moment of truth, he speaks his truth. He's not afraid of it. He steps up and he says graciously, I, I can't do this. And when he's told no again, he says, is there a way around this? Is there a way around this? And uh, offers this creative solution. How many of us in work positions, with bosses, with teachers, could say this pattern would be a better pattern than just blowing up or just like giving up and saying, I'll, I'll, I'll eat the king's food? Because don't, don't be fooled. All of us are being offered the king's food on a daily basis. I don't know what that is for you, but we're all being offered moments and opportunities to go, to, to walk beyond the lines of our conscience. To go beyond the priorities that we've set. To go, to like give up on our convictions. To give up on our values. Your king's food might be different than mine, but man, the king's food looks really tasty sometimes. It's so easy to give up on that. I want to encourage you, if you have teachers or if you have bosses that you're struggling with, determine privately, ask graciously, and offer solutions. There's nothing, if you're a boss, there's nothing, nothing worse than someone just like says, I'm not going to do it, and they don't give any reason, they don't explain why, they're not gracious, and they don't offer any solutions. Be a, be a problem solver. Here's the second thing. Daniel shared priorities and faith with friends. It says here in, in Daniel 1.12, Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to, to drink. He had friends that, that helped him and they support each other. Do you, do you think that Daniel and his three, his three friends from, from God's people who have been moved all the way to Babylon, do you think that they never struggled with doubt? Never struggled with their convictions? Never struggled like, hey, should we do this or should we not? Should we join into this? Should we? And Daniel had spiritual community. I want to encourage you, if you don't have spiritual community, it is going to be so hard to like stand for what you actually believe in. And I want you to stand for what you believe in. I want you to, to like enter into like the life in the Babylon that we live in and be able to stand with convictions. Spiritual community is so important. At the beginning of October, uh, beginning of fall, we're going to be launching community groups. Those are spiritual communities. I don't care if they're like just a few people, like Daniel's friend, or you got thirty people that meet. But you've got spiritual community to to love and support and hold accountable. It's so so important. Now, here's the last thing I want to hang out on, and I think this is the one that challenges our culture the most. Most you guys still hanging with me? We good? Here it says this, determine your priorities before the dilemma so that your dilemma doesn't determine your priorities. Isn't it true if you have not spent time thinking about like what you stand for, when the dilemmas come, when the temptations come, you know, when the trials come, those will begin to determine what your priorities are. And you'll have handed away your ability to think, reason, and seek God's wisdom when the priority, when, when the dilemmas come, because those will shape your priorities. When the cookies come and you've made, you've drawn the line in the sand. You've said to your wife, I will not eat those cookies. But then she starts eating them and the queen's food looks so good. <laughs> and then she pulls out some, you know, sour patch kids and you're like, oh my gosh. The dilemma starts to determine George's priorities. How many of you guys have seen this before? Not me, I mean in yourself. 
So let me t- let's talk about this for for just a moment. Daniel determined he would not defile himself. He determined what his priorities were. Uh, we have this this struggle, I think, in our day and age, and I think it's been in every day and age. But here's how I see it playing out in ours. We have the opportunity with our priorities to build our priorities on the purposes of God or to play Jenga with our priorities. Uh, how many of you guys are, you know, on some sort of journey with the Lord in here? Go ahead, raise your hand. There's a few of you. Okay, at least half. That's cool. Um, really glad. And I'm, you know, some people are like just on their journey toward God and you're trying to explore faith. And I'm so glad you're here. You can belong before you believe. But if you're, and if you don't believe and you're not a Christian yet, would you agree that Christians, if you're a Christian, should probably have some priorities around the Lord? And we would, I think most, I think most Christians would say, yeah, my priorities, uh, I prioritize God. He's the top priority. And then everything else kind of follows. That's what most people would say. But see, God doesn't just listen to what we say. He watches what we do. He watches what we do with our time, our talent, our treasure. And here's what I'm afraid that happens. When we set priorities, what we often do in America, or maybe in Georgia's life, who lives in America, is we'll kind of set it in mud. We won't set it in concrete. Because we don't want it to be too rigid. And so what happens is like in our lives, um, man, I'm supposed to go to this wedding or I'm supposed to go to this funeral. It's really important. But then like, man, I got an offer to go to the Seahawks game. That's a pretty good offer, right? So right now I'm going to prioritize. I mean, they'd understand. They love the Seahawks and they're dead anyways. Like they're not going to miss me at their funeral. (laughs) You know, and so we'll reprioritize this thing. And, um, you know, like we, we've got, you know, God here and we've got family or however you would kind of prioritize stuff, husband, wife, spouse, you know, like how do you, however you prioritize. But then, you know, like I need me time. And I see a lot of young families struggling with, I need me time. It's so hard. I'm working hard and my kids are crazy and I love them to death, but I'm like, it causes all kinds of anxiety, worry and stress. I need to de-stress. So I need me time. And what ends up happening is me time isn't like, uh, you know, around our families and our kids, it's at the expense of our kids and family sometimes. So we'll be like, let me find, okay, yeah, I need some me time, whatever that might look like for you. And I, you know, I need to go hang with the bros and get a brew or whatever your beverage of choice is or hang with the ladies. And pretty soon this becomes a pattern where this is the most important thing. We just start taking these, I need more me time, you know, and there's other people who like in our day and age, we want our lives to look really good, especially on social media. Cause if we look good, uh, then, it, then, then everybody thinks it is good. So our marriages and our jobs and our, like how we look and our appearance, all that stuff gets so important. So we start like saying, if I can curate, do you know what curation is? Like taking someone through a museum, showing them, look how good this looks. Look how good this looks. And we start curating our lives saying, man, as long as it looks good, and you know, like, oh man, I have this opportunity to make my life look really, let's go adventure. And all of a sudden, your, your spiritual community, I see a lot of this, people's spiritual community, like today, church, being here, like learning and, and putting our heart, giving our hearts to the Lord and focusing on Him, growing spiritually with people in community, loving one another, knowing about other people's lives, all that stuff gets put on the back burner because of like me time and curating a great life. So other people, so we look good to others and, and pretty soon we're building this thing and we're trying to find out like, okay, how can I make my life look? And the priorities start getting out of whack. Do you agree that this is possible? And here's the reality, whether it's money uh, that starts to, to go up or appearance and popularity, all this stuff, we start building our life on this. 
and we're playing Jenga with our lives instead of building them on the priorities and purposes of God. And uh, over time, what happens is you, you build this higher and higher and higher, and you're taking out all these pieces that should be lower, and you're putting God and family and all these things lower and lower, and then here's what happens. Get ready. Ah. So I hope I didn't scare anybody too badly. But our life gets wobbly as we start building this thing because we're taking out from the foundation and we're over-prioritizing the wrong things. And what happens when our life gets so wobbly that it finally like tips over? Why God? Why me? Why would you let this happen to me? Why would, and God's looking at us. He's like, you're the one who decided to play Jenga with your life. I told you what the most important things. And in fact, uh, one of my favorite verses, this is the life verse for me. This is in Matthew uh, uh, chapter uh, 6. It, it says this in verse, uh, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and all the other things will be added to you. All the other things will find their place. But when we start seeking other things besides God's kingdom, besides his love, first we make other things first. Our lives all of a sudden get wobbly, tip over, and then who do we blame? God, why would you allow me to make such bad decisions? And I think that's the world we live in. And what I want for you is a life that's built solid and strong. You know what your priorities are. You know what you're, 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 you're living for. And you're not gonna, you're not gonna give those things up. They're set. There's no Jenga. And if you start playing Jenga, you're like, oh, nope, this is going back. Cause my life's getting wobbly. I'm, I'm pursuing the wrong things. And, and let me ask you this. What, what king's food has been tempting you recently? What's the habit for you to give up on the priorities that really should be priorities? What's that tasty food? What's that tasty thing? What's that habit where you're like, oh, I'll just, I'll just sleep in or I'll just like, I, I don't have to go to this wedding or I don't have to be with this friend. And when you, play Jenga with your life, what you end up doing is you end up committing your life to you only. And you don't commit to anything because you have FOMO, you have fear of missing out on all this stuff. So you don't commit to anything. And some of you are like, man, that's really like narrow, George. That's really narrow of you to think that way. I am telling you, when you narrow down your life and say the kingdom is first my family is next you know husband wife and kids and then and then my passions and however you would organize that but you organize it right and it's godly and it's good like i'm telling you it might seem narrow at first but then it becomes wide and wonderful and in fact jesus talked about this he said in matthew 7 enter through the narrow gate go through the narrow gate before the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who go through it it's so much easier to look at the wide road and be like i don't want to commit to anything except the things that feel good or are good when they come up and i'll, I'll commit to that when they come up and you become a you, you're committed to nothing and relationships look that i don't really want to commit to this person i i don't want to full, like fully like say i know to everybody else in the world when I said yes to my wife and she said yes to me at that altar, when we got married, we were saying no to everybody else. Very narrow. Such a narrow way of living. But then it opens up trust and love. I can trust my wife. Um, I can trust her implicitly in ways that some people here cannot trust their loved ones, unfortunately. Because my wife's all in. And what seems narrow is actually freeing. Do you follow? It's a moment of prioritization that my brought, my daughter brought to my attention. 
Um, it was actually this morning, and my wife was doing her hair, and I was kind of getting my sermon finalized and uh, it printed, and I was just making a few tweaks, and and um, and my my wife's like, hey, you should get your daddy to do your hair because she's always doing her hair. And my daughter looks at me, she's like, no, d- daddy, daddy does all his, all the stuff for church. He never does hair. And I was like, that's really funny, but also like kind of cut. And it reminded me of a. I remember there was a day where I missed one of her, like, it was like ballet or soccer, and I missed one of her events because there was some church stuff coming up, and, uh, and I needed help some people. And I, and I came late, and I got there at the very end, and uh, I was like, sorry, guys, church stuff came up. And she goes, it's okay, Daddy. I know, I know church is really important. That's why you, you couldn't be here. And, and when she said, I know church is important, what she was like, just accepting was like that in my life, and I love you guys, and church is really important. My faith community is extremely important. But she was internalizing that it was more important than her. King's food was being eaten, and I needed to push it away. Uh, what are your priorities? Would you throw up the last slide, please? Would you take time this week to prioritize your priorities? List one, two, three, God family this that like and then compare it to you what you actually do and what you actually live and talk with somebody about it compare it with somebody like say and not to like be are you better than me but to look and to learn like what what are my priorities and am i living into them because it's really easy to let the dilemma determine the direction of your life will you pray with me father god i'm just so thankful for this church family i'm so thankful for the lessons we can learn from Daniel. Lord, if we've been playing Django with our life, would you just, would you open our eyes? Would you help us to quit blaming you? Would you help us to learn to commit? Lord, and when we, Lord, you committed, you were all in with us. Jesus, you died on the cross because you were all in with us. It wasn't like you were 90% in, you were 100% in, Lord. Uh, I, I, I just, Lord, I ask that we would be people who go 100% in, that you are number one in our life, and that everything else would be prioritized according to your kingdom and your plans. And Lord, that we would have a life that can't be shaken. We'd have a life that looks like Daniel, and that we would pass the tests. And when the dilemmas come, when the trials come, Lord, we would already be convicted about who we are and what we do, Lord. We say no to the things that, that, that aren't important. We say yes to the things that are. Lord, help us to love each other, love you. And to live lives worthy of the, of what you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.